Welcome to Generations. This is Kevin Swanson, your host, also Steve Vaughn with me on this edition. And you know, we open this up to our listening audience and have for 20 years of this broadcast. This is our 20th year anniversary, Steve. Wow. That, you've, been on that, you've been at this for quite a while. Yeah, I have. I, I have. Yeah. just continued to broadcast over all these years. And somebody wrote into the program and asked the question. And we say, hey, you have any questions? Any comments, any additions, subtractions, simply write us at host at generations.org. That's host at generations.org. And uh, this young man says, you've said in a few programs that you have like to have input uh, on future programs. I've thought about emailing you for a while and have tried to think about something that I think really needs to be talked about. He brings up this, uh, this man, Andrew Farley. I've learned a little about him. Do not think he's teaching truth. I know there are many other people who are similar as well, but this was just the first that came to my mind. All right, so what do you think about Andrew Farley? That was his question. He says his family enjoys listening to The Worldview in five minutes and this program. Thanks for the ministry. What do we think of Andrew Farley? Well, I did a search on him. I've actually never heard of him. Uh, He's got an article on crosstalk.com. And so it was somewhat of an interesting article, but I would say that it's worth interacting with. There are many ways in which people depart from the truth, and I think we have to be cautious with this. And the most fundamental way in which people depart from the truth has to do with the gospel. And Revelation 14, 12 says, in the end times, the true believers are those who keep the faith of Jesus and keep the commandments of God. Now, that word keep means to guard and to watch out for and be committed to. All right, so those that are committed to keep the faith of Jesus, and are committed to and keep the commandments of God are those who constitute believers in the end times. I believe that's pretty much any time after which Revelation 14, 12 was written. So now we live in an antinomian age, and and antinomianism has showed up again and again throughout history. It quickly disappears, actually. It, It does disappear. It comes in the first two centuries through a guy by the name of Marcion, who throws away the Old Testament, but that was not the way the early church handled the commandments of God or the law of God. That wasn't the way in which the church through the ages, the reformers, others, handled the law of God. Occasionally, of course, you get an uprising of antinomianism. It tends to be a cultic form of Christianity that's just not sustainable. It comes and goes, like Arianism or the Jehovah's Witnesses. They sort of come and go, and, and then they're gone, and then they come back, and so forth. So... We just get they they get recycled into Christianity whenever I guess the devil wants to throw in another system of thought. So sometimes it comes across as extremely blatant. One modern famous preacher we've talked about, he's has actually literally said, Thou shalt not keep the Ten Commandments. So sometimes it's very explicit. But as I took a look at crosswalk.com, Andrew Farley's article. He says that Christians believe lies about the Ten Commandments in this particular article. And he gives us two basic propositions. One is that Christians are free from the whole law. We need to get away from the law of God, he says, which includes the Ten Commandments. To, In order if we find any real victory over sin, we've got to get away from the law of God. And that includes the Ten Commandments. And the second thing he says is that Christians do not need the Ten Commandments anymore to define sin. So the Ten Commandments are not the source of our morality. Now, in in some cases, I saw that Andrew Farley's statements are just somewhat imprecise. 
not necessarily full-blown antinomianism. But, uh, but at some points, it does smack of antinomianism. So I, you know, what, what's going on here? What, what is the use of the law of God as far as the Christian is concerned? Now, of course, the Bible and Jesus and Paul, they all use the Ten Commandments to define sin and morality. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 ups the ante. So you've heard it said of old time, uh, you should not murder, but I say unto you, and he adds something to it. He includes something. He, he furthers the impact or the import of that commandment, thou shalt not murder. And he goes on and says, not, you shouldn't be hating your brother in your heart. You shouldn't be angry. These are expressions of sin that are included under the category of the sixth commandment. So, so Jesus ups the ante on the commandments of God. And he later says in Matthew chapter 5, 17, if anybody teaches anybody to ignore the least of these commandments, he will be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' respect for the commandments is extremely high. In fact, he condemns the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15 who have displaced the law of God. That is the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. They have displaced the importance or significance or applicability of the fifth commandment with the traditions of men. So to the extent that people don't respect or keep the commandments of God is a huge issue for Jesus. And the Pharisees, of course, were doing just that. And that's why he condemned them. So, so Jesus, Paul, the Bible uses the Ten Commandments to define sin and morality or what, that, what is immoral. Now, it's true the Ten Commandments do not enable us to keep the law. So they're not the source of our morality in that sense. So if you're saying that the Ten Commandments are not our source of our morality in the sense that the Ten Commandments enable us to keep the law, absolutely, I would agree with that. So again, depends on what you mean by some of these phrases. Now, what do you mean by being free from the whole law? Steve, I want to take a look at that in just a moment. Uh, What does it mean when someone says we are free from the whole law? Does that mean free from keeping the law? What does that mean? That's the $100,000 question. What does it mean to die to the law? What does it mean to be free from the whole law? We're going to hit that in just a moment on Generation. Stay with us. Hello, my friends. For the last 15 years, the Generations team has produced a Christian curriculum specifically for families who want to give their children a God-centered, Bible-saturated, biblical worldview-based education. Our commitment is to restore the Christian faith, generational faith in an age where we are losing faith in this country and almost anywhere around the world where Christian children attend secular schools or use secular curriculum and imbibe secular culture. Now, we're not relying on the pre-Christian Greeks for an educational model here. We're not relying on the post-Christian secularists for the education model either. Our curriculum is based in a biblical worldview. We put hundreds of Bible verses in the history books and integrate the truths into the subjects. We want to glorify God on every page of the science books. We immediately integrate knowledge into life application and natural revelation with special revelation. We keep Christ at the very center of the history books with preparing the world for Jesus and taking the world for Jesus. I believe God is calling this generation in this highly secularized age to a radical change in how they disciple their children. Please check out our program for education of your children and grandchildren at www.generations.org.
And we are back on Generations. This is Kevin Swanson. Big question here on the Generations broadcast. Does the Word of God establish the constraints for Christian morality? That's the big question that is being posed here. Or are all bets off and we can do whatever we want? And there is no definition of that which is right and wrong in the New Testament era. Or is it just something as simple as loving your neighbor? Just, you know, gays love each other, whatever. Kipling would say, what was it in the poem? He started by loving his neighbor and ended by loving his wife. His neighbor's wife. Okay, Mm. so, whoa. So you've kind of got a slippery definition of the word love there. And so, you know, in the modern (laughs) church, you've got the gay love, you've got adultery, you've got like whatever you want to do, man. It's all love. It's all love, baby. All you need is love, right? You've heard that before, Steve. <laughs> That's the Beatles song. Yeah, all you need oh, yeah. is love. Yeah, yeah. Well, he I started mean that, by loving his neighbor and ended by loving his wife. Yeah. So, but th- this brings in some interesting questions. I, I'm a, I'm a debate coach, and so I, I like to look at things and start to ask questions. You know, cross examination, and uh, you know. So one of the first questions, you know, so when when Jesus was talking about keeping the whole law and you know not one jot or tittle. But, you know, that was, that was before the cross. Okay. So didn't Jesus die and rise again? And so therefore essentially complete the law or fulfill the law. And therefore we don't need to worry so much about that since he fulfilled it. Well, there's no question that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, which required what? The shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission. So how do you deal with that? And of course, in the Old Testament, that was the shedding of blood of sheep and goats and so forth. But Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, the principle behind the ceremonial law, by offering his own life for us. And so in that sense, yes. Okay. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. Now the question is, did Jesus fulfill the law relating to bestiality, homosexuality, et cetera, et cetera, so that we don't have to pay any attention to those laws anymore and we can just run out there and do whatever we want? (laughs) <laughs> and the answer to that is no. Again, I'm trying to be as plain as I can possibly be on this. So, yeah, great question. Um, and I don't think there's any division between the teachings of Jesus. We, we are to be sure that the teachings of Jesus abide with us, and we are to be constantly referring back to the teachings of Jesus. And there is no contradiction between the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of his apostles. So I think we need to understand that as well. But the $100,000 question here is, what do, you, what do you mean when it says you die to the law? Because actually, this, uh, this fellow, Andrew Farley, brings out Romans 7, 4, where Paul speaks of us dying to the law. There's something of a ceasing of a certain relationship with the law. He speaks of it in terms of you know a, a, a different relationship now that we have died to the law and now are alive in Christ. And absolutely, our relationship with grace is now the operating factor, the power principle that's replaced our relationship of threats and condemnation we had when we were in relationship with the law. So we're no longer under the dominion or the rule of the law as the law forcing our behavior by threats and condemnation. So that's the point that Paul is making in Romans 7 and verse 4. 
Nevertheless, the law is still the will of God. The law is still good. I delight after law after the inward man. The law still determines right and wrong. The law is still an ethical norm. The law is not a condemning, threatening, censure-driven influence in our lives anymore, but it's still informative. It's still something that teaches us. Now, 1 John 4, I think, is very clear as to what sin is. Sin is anomia, or the transgression of the law of God. Sin is antinomianism. It's a bad attitude towards the law, effectively. Sin is hating the law of God. Sin is not liking the law, to be against the law of God. Sin is the transgression of the law of God. So that's why, of course, we're all very nervous when people say, well, I hate the law of God. (laughs) I hate God's law. Yeah. I have a terrible relationship with the law of God. uh, And therefore, I will tell you all that I hate God's law. I don't want to hear anything about it. Not only don't want to keep the law, I don't want to hear the law. So that's that that would make me nervous. (laughs) That's a problem. So, you know, anybody who reads Ephesians 6 and verses 1 and 2, honor your father and your mother, uh, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord God gives you. And, and you hear that as, as you're reading the epistle to the Ephesians and someone stands up and says, oh, I hate that. I don't want to hear that. You know, throw that in the wastebasket. <laughs> we got a problem there. Yeah. <laughs> That's a huge problem. We got a serious attitude of anomia against the law of God. But if you take the, the, the idea of sin or the word sin as defined as anomia, which is the transgression of the law of God. And again, this this guy says you can't define sin as the transgression of the law of God or the transgression of the commandments of God. And I say, no, that's that's not what the word of God tells us. Sin is the transgression of the law of God. Romans 6.12 says, therefore, do not let sin or the transgression of God's law reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, that is, to transgress the laws of God, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And here's the key verse, Romans 6 and verse 14. For sin, that is the transgression of the law of God, shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So it's not saying that you can run out there and transgress the law of God right and left. No, no. You have been set free from having to transgress the law of God all the time. You have been set free from that in Christ because you are under grace. So in what sense are we not under the law? That's the $100,000 question. Well, the obvious way in which that happens, sin doesn't rule over you anymore. Also, we're not under the condemnation and sanctions of the law. We're not under the force or power of the law of, of God as we are under the force or power of grace. Romans 8, 2 to 3, I think, resolves all this. And one of the problems with modern Christians is they proof text their theologies by picking and choosing here and there instead of running all the way through chapter six, seven, and eight. And to me, this is the way in which you get a balanced view of Paul's view of the law. You've got to you got to get a running start. You got to go all the way back to Romans six, which I did, then into Romans seven, and then into Romans eight. And Romans eight concludes it and resolves it this way. Listen, for what the law was powerless to do, the problem is the the, the law could not do anything to make us obey the law. That was the problem with the law. The law actually heightened the problem. It's what we call the beans in the nose tendency of the law. That is, the mother instructs her children not to put beans in their noses. Well, she comes back from shopping and finds they all have beans shoved up their nose. Why? Because, <laughs> well, the law incited even more disobedience. So the law was powerless to get us to obey the law. That was the problem in Romans 7. So in Romans 8, 2, and 3, we, it, everything is resolved. Listen to this. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weak through the flesh because the flesh always wants to disobey the law. 
okay? God sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin or the transgression of the law in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might actually be fulfilled in us who walk not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. So we're enabled by the Holy Spirit, not by the threatenings of the law, but by the Holy Spirit, by Holy Spirit power, by the new life that works in us, by grace, we're empowered to keep the righteous requirements of the law. So the righteous requirements of the law are actually fulfilled in us. That's the goal. But this fellow Andrew commits the either-or fallacy when he says the Ten Commandments are not the goal of the Christian life. Knowing Christ is the source and knowing Christ is the goal. Well, the goal of the Christian life is to know Christ and to love Christ and to keep his commandments. So, you know, the either-or fallacy, and you know what the either-or fallacy is, it's either this or that. No, it turns out it's both. Or it could, could be, you know, multiple answers. Yeah. So, so Andrew commits the either-or fallacy when he says, the Ten Commandments is not the goal of the Christian life, but knowing Christ is the goal. No, no. The goal of the Christian life is to know Christ, absolutely, and to love Christ. And he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So it's to keep his commandments as well. We don't set the commandments of God, the Father, against the commandments of God, the Son. And we don't set the keeping the commandments of God against loving Christ and knowing Christ. We don't set these one against the other. And again, I think it's important that Mr. Farley be very careful to study all of Romans 6, 7, and 8 instead of proof-texting a Christianity. Be very careful, folks, about becoming a teacher in the church before you've studied the matter from the Word of God thoroughly and taken into account 2,000 years of the Christian church's view on the law of God. You have to take the entire passage together. You can't proof-test your way into a cheesy theological structure uh, without taking into account the whole of Paul's argument from Romans 6 through 8. But then what are the uses of the law? And this tends to be the, 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 the question that keeps coming back. Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I would not know sin if the law had not said thou shalt not covet. So, so the law informs. The law is also a summary or short synopsis. Love is a summary or short, short synopsis of the law of God as well. Romans 13, verse 9, we find uh, Paul going over the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, are all summed up in the saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what, what can we say? But that all of God's word is there to equip the man of God for every good work. That is, some say, well, all I really need is to write the, you know, love God, love my neighbor on my hand, and I'm good to go. Well, yeah, but, you know, in, in reality, Steve, you got to know how to love your neighbor and how to love your neighbor is sort of developed on in all of scripture. You got to forgive your neighbor. You got to be merciful to your neighbor. You got to remember not to trip a blind man. You got to be, you know, careful to put a parapet around your roof because that would prevent the loss of life. Some people say, well, I don't need any of that. I'm just really good at loving everybody. I've got the Holy Spirit. And so I don't really need the word of God the Old Testament and the New Testament equip the man of God for every good work because I'm really good to go with just this you know simple summary to the whole law to love God. And so I'll just kind of you know wing it. Well, I don't know if you've ever run into people like that, but I don't like doing business with them. <laughs> you know, things like that. Because <laughs> yeah. oftentimes they're the kind of guys who begin to, by loving their neighbor and then end by loving his wife. And for that reason, I get a little nervous around people saying, you know, I, I don't really need any of the commandments of God. I'm just good to go. Yeah, I, I look back also at Ezekiel, I think it was 36, where it says that he would t- 
take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a soft heart, and that he would place his spirit in us and cause us to walk in his ways and make us careful to obey his ordinances. It is, it's not us trying to do it in our own strength, but it is the spirit right, in right. us. And so as we surrender to Christ, he, he's changing our want tos. We get to the point where we don't want to break God's law. We don't want to displease him. We want to do the things that please God. And that is the role of the spirit. It's not, uh, it's not that he now gives us that extra oomph that we can now keep the law in our strength. It is Christ in us by the Holy Spirit that will change our want tos and make us want to please God by following what his ordinances are. And is the word of God helpful? Absolutely. Is the word of God helpful? It's, it's helpful. I mean, it's, it's his way, it's his will. And he expects us to be planted by the rivers of water, meditating on the law of God day and night, and thereby being you know fruitful in season. Now, Again, a few other caveats, and you know, one of the points is, man, you've got to use the law lawfully, and I get it. I've got a whole section on this in my book, Worldview. By the way, I'd encourage you to my book, Worldview. If, if some of you say, "Well, we're going through too fast through all of this today," I, I got to chew on some of this. Hey, I've been chewing on this stuff for thirty years. <laughs> okay, so so I would encourage you to get this right as well, because if you do get this wrong, I do believe we we really see christianity going wayward on us and and the whole squishy evangelical worldview is not helpful to the modern age especially if we're to disciple nations in everything jesus commanded so you have to be able to distinguish between the principle and application as in the case of the parapet law we don't necessarily have to put parapets around our roofs i get that but what about porches what about swimming pools okay perhaps we do need to do that Perhaps we do need to be concerned about others. And perhaps God's law has a decent application that we can draw from, even if it does come from the Old Testament. So you have to distinguish between principle and application. You have to distinguish between the external ceremonial elements and the fundamental ethical principles in the particular law. Now, it is true there's a difference between the external ceremonial elements of the law and the more fundamental principles of the law which would be the Ten Commandments and the two great commandments. Here, 1 Corinthians 7, 19, very interesting verse. I just caught this in my personal Bible time. I think it was yesterday. 1 Corinthians 7, 19 says, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. That is, the ceremonial element called circumcision is, is, is of, of no real essence. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Okay, wow, I don't know what Andrew Farley would say about that. <laughs> it does appear that keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Hard to contradict that, right, uh, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> that kind of seems that straightforward. What it said? Yeah. yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Well, what does that okay. mean in the Greek? Guess yeah. what's, what matters? <laughs> yeah. Seems pretty clear to me. Yeah. But there's a there's a there's an interesting and very important contrast between the external ceremony element and the fundamental principle. And that's what Paul is bringing out in 1 Corinthians 7 19. Okay, well, I want to end with this question, Steve. Is this really a big deal? I mean, so what's wrong with antinomian Christianity? I think it is a big deal. Number one, because antinomian Christianity is, does not equip the man of God to every good work using the Old Testament, which is what Paul was saying there in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. It cuts out huge portions of God's word as totally irrelevant. Antinomian Christianity also often ends with, hey, guys, let's sin that grace may abound. <laughs> That's another problem with it. Yeah. You know, and what does Paul say? And was it? That was verse one of Romans six. He says, no, no, let nobody say, God forbid that anybody should say, let's sin that grace should abound. So, so that, no, no, we can't go there. And a lot of antinomian Christianity is just 
created such a mess in the Christian churches today. Antinomian Christianity is deceptive as well. It allows for a slipshod way to define right and wrong. Like a lot of these left-wing Christians try to claim more gray area when it comes to issues like homosexuality, bestiality, and incest and such. They prefer the subjective. They don't allow for the Bible to speak to objectives, and thus this becomes convenient to excuse all kinds of sin for themselves. Also, one more thing. Antinomian Christianity doesn't allow us a standard by which to determine civic morality and make judgment calls when it comes to the level of egregiousness of sins and matters of social justice and such. Without the law of God, before you know it, you're embracing social justice, Marxism, communism. And this is exactly what we're seeing with evangelicals today. Let's remember the law of God is perfect, converting the soul. Let's delight in the law of God after the inward man. Let's say, oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. That's, that's the way that we respond. Number one, when we're not in bondage to the law as the condemner, the slave driver. But we are released by the grace of God. And we are filled with the Holy Spirit, enabled, empowered by God himself to keep the commandments of God. Friends, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. And I encourage you to, my brand new book, Worldview, What We Believe, What They Believe, and Why They're Wrong. It's a brand new book. It really deals with all these fundamental issues. It's a whole section on ethics, a whole section on salvation, soteriology, and uh, eschatology as well, some basic stuff on teleology. Anyway, I encourage you to that book. It's called Worldview. The kind of things I've been chewing on for, well, really, probably 50 years. So I put that all in a little book called, oh, it's actually kind of a big book called Worldview, <laughs> What We yeah. Believe, What They Believe, and Why They're Wrong. Available at generations.org. This is Kevin Swanson and Steve inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.